like I Hold your head up high Till you find the bluebird of happiness You will find greater peace of mind Knowing there's a bluebird of happiness Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick. And currently, I am in the middle of my exploration of Dick's 1964 novel, Martian Time Slip. This is one of, uh, I think, four or five novels Dick published in 1964. It was really his breakthrough year in a lot of ways, and some of his uh, really wonderful science fiction came out that year. We have Penultimate Truth, Martian Time Slip, The Simulacrum. Simulacra and one other, one or two others. Um, but it was a big year for him in publishing novels. And as I was talking about in my last episode, Martian Time Slip is by far one of my favorite of Dick novels from the 1960s. Um, and it's pretty much one of my favorite novels that he wrote in his entire career. So one thing I like about this is it has a really wonderful story. It's got fairly memorable characters. And it's just full of really great ideas. Now, all these ideas will be explored in other ways and other in his other works. But we have Dick reimagining and revisiting the whole his whole concept of the frontier in Martian Time Slip. In a sense, turning the frontier on its head in a lot of ways compared to how he wrote about the frontier in his earlier novels. Uh, this Mars is not the great liberatory uh, space. It's actually a, an extension of of American suburbia and it's doomed and we'll get to how it's doomed in in future episodes it's um you know we already kind of see the right in the wall early on in the story that it's kind of already reaching a, a bit of stagnation but there's still hope there's a lot of characters who still have hope for the frontier um even though that hope is exposed to be um false we have a lot in this novel about disability um, we have a character who's autistic we have a lot in this novel about mental illness, and I suppose Dick could be criticized for um, combining autism with, with schizophrenia a lot of times, and I don't know how much Dick knew about this or what the current science in the 1960s was saying about things like autism, but uh, you know, this, a lot of this stuff doesn't really hold up well, but it's just fascinating how he talks about mental illness, um, especially the preponderance of people with mental illness on the frontier. And it's another sign that the frontier is, is doomed. Uh, we have great stories here on the family, on adultery, and the, how a family can endure um, adultery and survive, and how families deal with suicide, and, and how families deal with the pressures of living on a frontier. So that's all in this novel. We have uh, great novels, great moments here about hierarchy, about the relationships between workers and, and their bosses. Um, what else here? Oh, and then wonderful stuff on, on education, which I'll, I'll say more about in, in, in this episode as well. Um, so in the previous episode, I looked at the first three chapters of, of Martian Time Slip, and I'm going to basically continue in this series with that approach, looking at three or maybe four chapters per, per episode. But what happens in the first part of Martian Time Slip? Well, in the first three chapters, Dick is really kind of setting up the setting and some of the major characters. So we basically meet two families, the, the Bolin family, the wife Sylvia, the husband Jack, who's a repairman, and and their child 
David. Their neighbors are the Steiners. There's four girls. There's a boy who is staying in a special school for handicapped uh, children with developmental disabilities. In his case, it's autism. And the father, Norbert, who basically runs black market products and distributes black market products. We learn that Jack Boland's father is coming because he's interested in getting involved in a real estate speculation in in a place called the FDR Mountains, which is kind of a frontier area within the frontier, an area that's that's considered a wasteland and not worthy to invest in. The other character we meet is Arnie Cott, who's the head of the Water Workers Union, which is the most powerful institution in in Mars by far. He's the richest man. We learn about his racism towards the indigenous people of Mars called the Bleakman. He has a he has a servant, a quote unquote tamed Bleakman as a servant, but he, he basically holds a lot of prejudice against them. Um, we see some of his interest in really kind of promoting Mars as a, as a frontier space. So he, he's kind of a booster, uh, a promoter for, for Mars. And uh, so we kind of get two, in the first two chapters, we get kind of two windows into into the world, one from more the top, kind of the boss perspective, and the other from the the common the commoners, the working class perspective. Uh, now these two forces meet. Arnie Cott and Jack Bolan meet while they're both out in their little flying car things, and they both get a distress call from a group of bleakmen. And under law, they're required to go aid these bleakmen. Arnie Cott thinks it's an annoyance. Jack Bolan. Does just does his duty and and he finds they need water. He's kind to them. Arnie Cod is not, and he's just going there because he's required to. They meet for the first time, and Arnie Cod is put out by how Jack Bolin basically doesn't um, basically lick boot lick his boots. Um, Jack eventually gives water to the Bleakman, and in return, the Bleakman give him a, a water witch, which is like a kind of a mummy that they use to divine for for water, for rain, basically their rain doll. Chapter three, then we meet, we, we meet for the first time, really, Norbert Steiner. We've met the Norbert Steiner family before, but now we meet Norbert. He works as a health food salesman, basically importing stuff. Why is this health food illegal? Well, it's because UN policy towards Mars is that Mars should be self-sufficient. And so therefore, these imports are frowned upon. He... He works with a guy named Otto Zitte. Otto Zitte was fired from, I think it was the Water Workers Union too, because instead of getting payments for repairs, he would sleep with these lonely housewives while the men were away. Um, but he eventually took this job at, you know, working with Norbert Steiner. Norbert suffers from extreme depression because he doesn't feel he's adequate for his job. He feels Otto is really pulling the weight for his job. He doesn't feel very happy about his family. He realizes that he really can't do much for his son. He's got four daughters, but only the one son, and that son doesn't have much of a future. In fact, he's got news that the camp that his son stays at, Camp BG, is probably going to be shut down and the kids essentially euthanized out of due to eugenics policies by the UN, which want to promote a, a pure and clean and progressive frontier, not one burdened by mental illness and, and these developmental disabilities. So with this news and with his other feelings of failure in his life, he... Uh, doesn't even go to meet his son. He actually talks to the doctor, but doesn't actually meet his son. Instead, he walks to a bar. The bar tender basically agrees that these children should be killed, not knowing that Norbert was the father of one of these kids. Then Norbert just walks into traffic and dies. And the very last scene of, of the chapter shows us David 
Oh, sorry, Manfred, Norbert Steiner's son, Manfred, the autistic kid, uh, responding to the the siren of the ambulance that's coming to to pick up his his dead father. So it's it's kind of a from the teacher's point of view, watching this, it's a great moment because you think, wow, the you know Norbert's or Manfred's been reached. But actually, what he's responding to is the death of his his own father, and that's what happens in the first few chapters. So really, it's kind of setting up these characters and getting letting get a feel for those characters, and the setting we're in and some of the politics going on. So um, really, uh, Norbert Steiner's death sets things into motion plot wise. So that's where we're going to pick up. Chapter four really explores the aftermath of the Steiner suicide and what are the consequences of the Steiner suicide in the short term. So as chapter four begins, the UN comes to the Steiner's house to inform the family of what happened. And most of this is told through the perspective of the Boland family. I think David Boland is watching as the, you know, as the cars come up to the house. Uh, and eventually the police come over to the Bolands asking essentially that if they're willing to watch the girls while the young Steiner girls, while, you know, the, the, the wife Steiner's wife is is taken to the station or whatever for the for the paperwork and things like that. Um, we're introduced to a character named June Hennessy, who's another neighbor of the Steiners and the Bolins, and kind of a girlfriend to Sylvia Bolin, and they often talk. And she becomes a little bit more important later in in the story, but they do are gossip a little bit about the Steiners. And eventually, the UN asks formally for the four Steiner girls to stay with the Bolins, and of course they eventually agree. So that's what happens at the Bull and Steiner residence with the news of Norbert Steiner's suicide. Then we switch over to Arnie Cott, who's talking with Anne. Anne is the his ex-wife, and she's a, a secondary character in the novel. She's a fairly prominent person. She has a newsletter, kind of a ladies' newsletter for people living on Mars. Um, Arnie keeps good relations with her. They have business interests together still and they both have this interest in kind of promoting mars for for immigration and they have a son together who stays at the at the camp beachy along with with manfred steiner uh, basically arnie at first is just trying to comfort Anne because Anne is a bit shaken up because she had just seen norbert steiner minute moments before he killed himself and she starts to really blame blame herself and arnie's kind of giving the the standard lines like it's not your fault and we, we're reminded here at this point of just how much uh, mental illness there is on, on the frontier. It's not as clear if that much the same amount exists on Earth. But this idea of a kind of a world going progressively insane is something Dick does a lot, especially in, in things like the simulacrum, um, Three Stigmata, Palmer and Eldridge, too. But in this novel, we have this idea that kind of everywhere around the human race is getting more and more mentally ill, but certainly on Mars. And a lot of people are aware of mental illness and aware of its consequences. And Arnie exposes this here, saying, quote, one thing, when you hear about a suicide, you can be sure the guy knows this, that he knows he's not a useful member of society. The real truth he's facing about himself. That's what does it, knowing you're not important to anyone. If there's one thing I'm sure of, it's nature's way, the expendable are removed by their own hand, too. So I don't lose any sleep when I hear of a suicide. And you'd be surprised how many so-called natural deaths here on Mars are actually suicides. I mean, it's a harsh environment. This place weeds out the fit from the unfit. And after saying this, that's when Anne announces that it was actually Norbert Steiner. And Arnie is taken aback by this because Arnie, 
who is one of the more wealthy members on Mars, relied very heavily on Steiner for his connection to these black market health food goods and things. And um, so he realizes he has a problem that he's going to have to find a new connection. And this is going to be another subplot of the novel in later chapters. And then with the Norbert Steiner stuff out of the way, Arnie and his ex-wife Anne talk about other things. They talk about the problem of the frontier that Arnie is continually grappling with, the fact that there's not enough people on Mars and not enough people are emigrating to Mars and the, just those difficulties. Arnie really wants to have a much more controlled and unified message coming out about the benefits of emigration. They also learn about the, they also talk about the, camp, the bill on the closure of Camp BG and something is here about really the problem of the image of Mars is, is a key part of this. Um, the reason the UN, we're told here, the reason the UN wants to really close down Camp BG is, again, it has to do with kind of this immigration policy. Earth is overpopulated. It needs Mars to be attractive to people. Yet the fact that so many kids on Mars have these, these disabilities or mental illnesses and stay at these camps, it gives the wrong image. And actually, Arnie's a little bit sympathetic to the policy that's trying to promote the frontier as, as I guess, clean and not full of, not full of nuts. Um, here's what he says. It tells the entire world we've got nuts here on Mars, that if you travel across space to get here, you have to damage your sexual organs and give birth to a monster that would make those German flipper people look like your next door neighbor. I'm just being a hard-headed realist. We're in a struggle for our lives. We've got to keep people emigrating here. We're dead on the vine, and You know that. If we didn't have Camp BG, we could advertise that away from Earth's H-bomb testing contaminated atmosphere and no abnormal births. I hope to see that, but BG spoils it. End quote. And he's saying this as someone who has a kid uh, at this camp. Now, remember, the, the whole policy of closing the BG camp is not just to close it, is to actually euthanize the children um, living there. So then we flip to another character, and that's Milton Gobb. Milton Gobb is the, the major psychiatrist um, at Camp BG. And of course, his policy, he wants to keep Camp BG going. And, he, you know, he sees other people, too. They actually see him at work here, seeing his patients. He sees one good member. What's his name? Here it is. Good member Purdy. Now, good member is just the kind of it means he's a union member. Um, Arnie is actually technically, I think, good member Arnie under this this terminology. So instead of like comrade or or brother, it's it's good member is the term we get. And he has various mundane mundane problems. I mean, Purdy does that he treats. So Glob does. All, he's even though he's probably the best psychiatrist on Mars, and at one point Arnie calls him the best psychi psychiatrist you know among humanity. You know, he does a lot of these these mundane works. He gets a call eventually from the president of New Israel. Now, the way settlement works on Mars, and I talked about this in the last episode, is different countries have landed different colonies on Mars. And in fact, it's the New Israel that's doing the best. They're actually reclaiming and terraforming Mars bit by bit. Others aren't doing as well. Um, but New Israel is one of the better and more successful ones. And that's actually where the Camp BG is. And Glob gets the notice, gets the information about the Steiner suicide as well. And his main concern here is about his reputation. So we got basically three people experiencing news of this suicide in different ways. For uh, probably the most intimate is, is Sylvia Bolin, who knows the girls and knows the neighbor, knows the wife, and you know has this burden of them taking care of these kids. 
uh, alone because Jack's always gone. Then we have Arnie Codd, who's worried about his own connections, but also worried about the image of of Mars as a place of mental illness and, and disorder. And then we have Milton Gobb, who's worried and anxious about his own reputation as someone who, you know, maybe couldn't treat this particular person. Now we get in just the last post, and this is one of the things that makes this book so great, is this character of Jack Boland. We, we get in the last page or so of chapter four, Jack Boland's reflections on this suicide. And Jack Boland admits he's only met Norbert Steiner a few times, and he doesn't have that personal connection. I think actually all the other characters we've seen in this chapter had a, had a more of a relationship with, with Norbert Steiner than Jack does. Um, but Jack nevertheless has the most profound emotional and empathic response to the suicide. To quote Dick here, this is going to affect us all in deeply. It was a strong and acute feeling and intuition. I don't believe I've ever exchanged more than a dozen words with Steiner at any one time, and yet there's something enormous about the death. Death has such an authority, a transformation as awesome as life itself, and yet so hard, so much harder for us to understand. End quote. So that's, um, he has, the, I guess, the most emotional response to, it's not just a problem that we face, it's actually kind of a, a profound human um, response to, to the news of someone he knows killing himself. And that ends, that ends chapter four. Now in chapter five, we're going to get our first very good and close look at, at the public school as Jack Bullen goes to do his job repairing the, the machines at the school. And we also get a little, to learn a little bit more about Jack Bullen's own past. Now, so Jack's just going to repair these educational robots. And the way education works on Mars is the kids that can't be G actually have regular teachers. But the children at regular public school, like Jack's own child, David, are basically trained by education robots. And the whole school is essentially automated. And this is maybe due to the labor shortage. Or maybe it's just a technology that's developed. I find it a rather fascinating one because everyone says teachers are a job that's at risk of not being, not at risk of being automated. But I'm not so sure about that. I think when you see like the rise of online education where a, a professor or a teacher can create a, a course that can be then distributed around the world and, and taken hundreds of times, it, you just need someone to like grade papers. If it's a multiple choice, a computer can grade those papers. I think, you know, and then how important is really grading and assignments and tests to education in the first place, right? How much do we learn just by searching for stuff on YouTube and the internet? In a sense, like the face-to-face -face lecture method has been obsolete since the library because, or the book, because it's so much more efficient to get information from books than you know, from a, from a lecturer, right? Because it's right there. You don't have to take notes and, and try to remember things because it's right there in the text, right? Um, but yeah, we still do that. Um, maybe some people need that face-to-face -face interaction. I don't know. But what's done here is you get the face-to-face -face interaction because each robot is individual and teaches different classes. So it, it replicates that kind of aspect of, of school where you go to your history teacher, then you go to your math teacher or whatever. Um, but also each robot is then able to program a lesson for each individual child not create one lesson that everyone every child has to graph uh, graph themselves onto and that in a sense is almost better than face-to-face -face education where you have teachers struggling to to reach all the students with just a handful of, of methods right here you know could draw in a bunch of methods it'd be like the robot doctor almost the robot doctor m might be 
better than a human doctor in the sense that it could draw on all the research and have, be able to hold much more data in its head and maybe make connections that human doctors would miss, an overworked human doctor might miss. Um, anyway, so I'm not so sure if the professions are safe from, from automation. Dick doesn't seem to think so here. In fact, Dick even says, writes here about the advantages of the teaching machines. Its advantage over the human teacher lay in its capacity to deal with each child individually. It tutored rather than merely teached. A teaching machine could handle up to a thousand pupils and yet never confuse one with the next. And each child, its response altered so it became a subtly different entity. Mechanical, yes, but almost infinitely complex. The teacher machines demonstrated a fact that Jack Bowen was well aware of. There was astonishing depth to the so-called artificial. All right. So... This is going to be important personally to Jack, but I just think as a as a theme on Dick's reflections, which go on throughout his career about automation, it's a rather interesting one. We hear we get a little bit more conversation uh, through Jack about autism and the relationship between autism and schizophrenia, the failure of autistic children to be or schizophrenic children to be educatable, which is why they had to go to the the Camp BG, but also the difficulty of education to deal with children who are abnormal. And I think Dick is really onto something here, and I'm going to talk about an article in a little bit. But here's uh, what he says about this. Quote, the public school then was right to eject a child who did not learn because what the child was learning was not merely facts or the basis or money of money making or even a useful career. It went much deeper. The child learned that certain things in its culture around him were worth preserving at any cost. His values were fused with some objective human enterprise. He cared. True autism, Jack had decided, was in the last analysis an apathy towards public endeavor. It was a private existence carried out on as if the individual person were the creator of all value, rather than merely a repository of inherited values. And Jack Bullen, for the life of him, could not accept the public school with its teaching machines as the sole arbiter of what was and what was not of value. And then he goes on to say, basically, the public school as an institution was neurotic because it expected the world to conform to its own needs, right? And I don't know if that's the formal definition of neurotic, but you can imagine the person who can't handle a crowd or can't handle, you know, sit next to someone on the bus, right? That Because whatever, for whatever reason, they can't adapt to the, the reality around them. And a school then is forcing these kids to accept um, the way things are. Autistic kids who can't, uh, you know, be molded as the way the school wants, then have to go to Camp BG, where they actually get the more individualized, personalized, face-to-face -face education that kids at the public school lack. So the good part of, I guess, the teaching robots is... It actually can reach each student individually, but it's still teaching a mass curriculum and teaching children to to conform. Well, the, the article I want to talk about, it's it's, it's uh, by a guy named Bruce Levine. It says, would we have drugged up Einstein? How anti-authoritarianism is deemed a mental health problem. And I'm not going to read through this whole thing for you, but essentially the thesis of this essay is when children display behavior deemed problematic by institutions, schools, par parents, families, you know, whatever, they are then sent to psychiatrists or counselors who then diagnose these children with, with um, ODD, which is um, oppositional defiant disorder or ADHD, uh, attention deficit hyperactive disorder, and then they're drugged. And these drugging regime, regimens usually cover much of their, their childhood, if not past that. Um, 
And the thesis of the of the essay is essentially that psychiatrists, due to their training and due to the long time they spend in school, come out of that basically accepting of authority and authoritarian. Yet many children, maybe not most, but many children are essentially anti-authoritarian. But that gets diagnosed as a disorder um, and it is, it is treated and basically suppressed. And so this is kind of a lefty reading of this issue of over-diagnosing and over-treating children. Um, but the argument comes down to the fact that we're basically drugging our, our most creative anti-authoritarian personalities at a young age increasingly. And then he goes and looks at Einstein and, and suggests that Einstein, based on his early, what we know about his earlier life, probably had what we would now call ODD or maybe ADHD and would have been drugged under the current climate, but, but, but wasn't, you know, obviously because there wasn't the, the mass prescription prescribing of, of these drugs to children in those days. Here's what he writes. Um, in an earlier dark age, authoritarian monarchies partnered with authoritarian religious institutions. When the world exited from the dark age and entered the enlightenment, there was a burst of energy. Much of this re revitalization had to do with risking skepticism about authoritarian and corrupt institutions and regaining confidence in one's own mind. We are now in another dark age. Only these institutions have changed. Americans desperately need anti-authoritarians to question, challenge, and resist new illegitimate authorities and regain confidence in their own common sense. In every generation, there'll be authoritarians and anti-authoritarians. While it is unusual in American history for anti-authoritarians to take the kind of effective action that inspire others to successfully, successfully revolt, every once in a while, a Tom Paine, Crazy Horse, or Malcolm X come along. So authoritarians financially marginalize those who buck the system and criminalize anti-authoritarianisms. They pathologize anti-authoritarians, and they market drugs for their quote-unquote cure. Anyways, that's the argument. I, I think it's rather compelling, might, to, be, to be honest with you. Anyways, and it's connected to this text, uh, the Martian time slip. Okay, so the next section we have is, is Jack's reflections on his own schizophrenia. Uh, I think this is the first time we hear that Jack himself is schizophrenic. Uh, it may have been hinted at before, but this is the first time. And he came to Mars after a, a schizophrenic breakdown, and he's been dealing with this throughout his life. And a few people know, I think like Glob knows, and and a few others, and it becomes some something more well known by characters later on in the novel. But he he basically reflects on it, and he's I don't know how to describe this experience. Um, I'll just read a little bit of the experience. Quote. Uh, well, he's looking at this this man. He's talking with him. I think it's his boss or something. And he he suddenly sees through him and sees him as a robot. He saw through the man's skin, his skeleton. It had been wired together. The bones connected with fine copper rewired. The organs, which had withered away, were replaced by artificial components. Kidney, heart, lungs. Everything was made of plastic and stainless steel. All working in unison, but entirely without authentic life. The man's voice issued from a tape through an amplifier in the speaker system. End quote. So basically he dreams or imagines he sees through this person as a robot. And I think it's really interesting that it contrasts with these teaching robots who pretend to be humans but are, are robots and they actually are kind of authentic. And then you have a human being who talks to you in such a way that it inspires you to imagine them as a robot. Um, and how often do we meet people who give us just the, you know, the, the recited script um, or say what they need to say, you know, even within families, right? Honey, I'm home from work. Oh, how was day? How was your day? Oh, it was great. You know, th this is all programmed conversations. It's not, it, there's nothing authentic about it. Robots could have that same conversation. 
Um, but anyways, uh, he realizes he's schizophrenic, and that's when he emigrates to Mars. So we learn a little bit more about his background. So he's continuing to fix the the robots. If, I think first he's it's like the the angry the janitor robot is what he fixed. I, what was its name? Yeah, the name is Angry Janitor. So the janitor is actually programmed to be kind of a grumpy, angry, working class guy. Um, then he moves on to the kindly. Uh, was it the kindly dad teaching robot and works on him and so again we learn that each of these robots has a different function like the Mark Twain teaches American history the Lincoln teaches state statecraft the you know there's probably a Socrates one so there's one depending on what the student wants to learn they'll go to a different different robot I think it's really kind of a cool idea eventually after working on the kindly dad he gets a call from Arnie Cott to work on his dictation machine, his encoder, his encoding machine. And this is an, becomes an important job because it reintroduces Arnie to Jack, who had actually, they have actually met before. In fact, there's there's actually some hostility, um, but yet nonetheless, Arnie seems to respect Jack because Jack stood up to him. But um, basically, I think, I think Arnie calls Yi, who is Jack's employer, and then you know Jack got the got the order, so he has to then he sent off to to um, to Arnie's. So what we have in this chapter is basically Jack at work, doing his job, going from job to job, and meanwhile reflecting on his own schizophrenia, and and we learn a lot about the way education is being performed in in Mars. So it's a really good chapter. A lot of interesting things to talk about and think about. So then we get to chapter six, and in chapter six we flip to Arnie Cott, and I guess this would be before Jack got the news. So, um, because he actually thinks about hiring Jack Bolin to fix his his encoding machine, um, but he's very he's playing his harpsichord. He is the only working harpsichord on Mars. It's just such a weird thing. I mean, Philip Dick loved that broke music so much, and he often works it into his his stories. He in the simulacrum simulacra which i'm reading now in preparation for the next series he actually has characters who play baroque jugs you know broke music on on jugs he just loved that period of music and, and stuck it in it just seems so, such an odd thing to have on mars you know a harpsichord I, a piano okay and probably a digital piano would make more sense and you can make those harpsichords but you know here we actually have a real harpsichord that there's no, it can't be tuned. And that's hilarious, too, because there's no one on Mars who knows the first thing about tuning harpsichords. There's probably not that many people on Earth who know that much about tuning harpsichords. Um, and he's trying to train his bleakman, Helioglopolis. Heliogabalus is his name. So if you want to break down this name, I don't know if it has much meaning. Helio, of course, means sun. Uh, Glabalus means a cross. Um or a gallows or a fork so they're actually torture devices um but that's the name i don't know if it's kind of a slave name but it, or if this is the real bleakman name or if it's a name given to him by by arnie but arnie's basically trying to get this helioglabalus to repair the the harpsichord um but he is angry at jack bullen so we see how important hierarchy is to Arnie how offended he was that Jack back with the encounter with the Bleakman when they went to repair when he went to help the Bleakman that basically that Jack didn't take his lead 
and didn't seem to share his racism and feelings of resentment over having to do this to the for the bleakman under UN laws. Um, so he basically wants to hire Bolin though because somehow he was attracted to him, and of course he's got this skill, and he actually calls Mister Yin, asks him for for help to repair his his encoder, and I think that's the job that eventually brings that Jack hears about at the end of the previous chapter. Arnie's also worried about UN claiming the FDR mountains. And the reason why he's worried about that is he has another interest in the FDR, F FDR mountains. So this is actually the second reference we have to a kind of a commercial or financial interest in the FDR mountain range. Uh, the first was Boland's father, who is a land speculator and wants to buy that land. Jack thinks it's ridiculous because it's wasteland. But we actually learn here that Arnie has actual real interests in the FDR mountains. And he's actually heard a rumor that the UN wants to set up a military base there. And this is not actually what the UN plans end up being, but uh, he hears about these plans. So he wants to secure that, and he's worried that, that the UN is going to get involved. But again, it all comes down to, I think, Arnie's a rather complex character, because although he's odious in a lot of ways, and he's racist towards the bleak men, and he's authoritarian, he also really does want to see Mars succeed and develop, and he's got a lot of hope in this. So he's kind of the frontier booster. And there's a lot of kind of historical models of these kind of frontier boosters and speculators and people who pop, propped up the frontier to enrich themselves. So um, we get our first good look here in this chapter at, at Helioglabius, this Bleakman servant, who of course has been tamed. That's the term we're given for these. Basically, they've been educated to serve in, in human societies. We learn that most bleak men aren't, haven't been quote-unquote tamed. But Arnie can't really help but resent Helio and insults him for basically being conquered and, and is frustrated that he's kind of with a figure he sees as so weak. And Helio basic sort of response to this stuff, but also in kind of a, a, a very polite way. And we get a definition given by Arnie of schizophrenia, and he sees schizophrenia as a reversion to kind of a primitive way of life. And it's interesting that he's saying this to a, a species that he considers quite primitive. You see this a lot in this novel, actually, different characters trying to make sense of mental illness, and they have their own definitions and explanations of what it is. And um, there's not like a single definition of what ment these mental illnesses. We learn that autism is apparently some sort of being out of time or a different perception of time. Whether that's true or not, I don't, you know, I have no idea. Uh, that's what Dick's playing with in this novel, and it's a major plot device of the novel. But with all these other mental illnesses, too, there's different people giving different responses about what it's about. And... You know, no one really seems to know very, very well what's going on. Uh, what he wants, though, and he ends up calling the union to ask for help. And there's a guy at the union, I, I think his name is Scott or something, who Arnie sometimes contacts. And he wants information about a precog from Camp BG. He, he wants to get... He wants to have a control over this land speculation issue and the future of the FDR mountains. And he wants to get a precog from Camp BG. So he basically calls his union contact and says, see what you can find out about getting hold of a precog from, from Camp BG. Uh, and this is going to be important because the first person they event eventually grab and start to work with is Manfred Steiner, the autistic kid. 
And at the end of the section, Arnie just threatens his tamed Bleakman, saying, you know, if you can't fix my harpsichord, I'm going to send you back out to the desert with with your with your people. Again, showing to get the character of, of Arnie. He wants he wants to get things done, and he wants to get things done quickly. And he wants things done um, on his terms. That's that's just who he is. Um, and next we are introduced to Otto Zitte. Otto Zitte was the the person who worked for Norbert Steiner and the black market stuff, and he he's frustrated now because he doesn't really have a job and he thinks back on what got him fired from this union job earlier which was as i described he he basically would not ask for payment from certain customers if he got sexual favors from these desperate housewives and he resents having to follow these rules so he's kind of an individualist that way and he doesn't want to get involved with the big business the big unions he even has, has this problem with with institutions overall um, quote, he hated the big racketeers too, such as he, same as he hated the big unions. He hated bigness per se. Bigness had destroyed the American system of free enterprise. The small business had been ruined, in fact. He himself had been perhaps the last authentic small businessman in the solar system. That was his real kind of crime. He had to live the American way of life instead of just talking about it. Screw him, he said to himself, seated on a crate surrounded by boxes and cartons and packages and the workings of several dismantled rocket ships, which he had been revamping. So what does Otto, poor Otto, do with his life now that he doesn't have an employer? Well, he decides to take the remaining supplies that Norbert Steiner left behind and then just continue to do his door-to-door salesman routine, bringing this stuff to all these desperate housewives in, in the diff- different neighborhoods. And he, you know, he's basically going to go back to his old ways of, of sleeping with, with, with women and enjoying his life that way. But... Um, I mean, he's he's kind of an odious character in that way, especially, I guess, in our current climate. There's not much that's very likable about him, but the way he's presented in the novel as a, as a someone seeking out a way of kind of to have an individual life in in this frontier where you have these big, powerful institutions like the Water Workers Unions and the even Mr. Yi, these strong businesses or the schools. Camp BG, the UN, all these institutions are at play here, and Otto's trying to assert kind of an individualism in there, and he's even attacking the institution of marriage. So I think there's something Dick is trying to do with this character. It's also setting up an important plot uh, that that yeah that is fulfilled in the climax of the novel. So, anyways, this this section is really about Otto Zietz's problems and his decision to basically go it alone and and use the supplies that he, he has in hand to, to start going to business for himself. So meanwhile, Bo- Jack Bolin basically doesn't want to to see Jack. He's not that, doesn't seem to like him. His previous encounter with him wasn't that good, but he does eventually meet Arnie Cott. He also meets uh, Doreen. Doreen is Arnie Cott's girlfriend mistress she's often referred to in this in the story he very very quickly fixed the encoder basically it's like less than a page like he goes off to do it and he comes back and he fixes it um and with that then arnie says okay let's go out to dinner you know and and celebrate the fixing of the encoder and so it's going to be doreen arnie jack and then they're going to meet milton glob the psychiatrist he says, you probably heard of him. 
So that's that's where chapter six lets off. They they leave together, and Jack's reluctant to go. He's not the kind of person. Now you got to imagine them. These are heavy hitters. You got one of the most powerful men on Mars. His beautiful girlfriend, fairly sophisticated, good taste, expensive taste, that kind of girl. And then you have this most important psychiatrist, the head of this, one of the psychiatrists at this major camp, and you know, an important figure in psychiatry among the human race, not just on Mars. And then Jack, who's a repairman, uh, is brought along. Why? Because he was there at the time, and maybe Arnie has plans for 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 Jack. And we'll learn in the next episode when we explore the next part of Martian Time Slip that indeed it's true that Arnie has various plans for for Jack. So in the next episode we'll look at chapter 789 so if you're reading along with me um, please look at chapter 789 before I upload the next episode and this is what we're really going to find here are two interrelated schemes by different characters both related to Jack. We have Jack learns about Arnie's scheme to to manipulate a precog in order to affect a real estate deal. And then we learn that his father, Leo, who arrives from Earth, has his own plans for the FDR mountains. And the, the tension between these two plans is fulfilled. We also get our first good look at Manfred Steiner and his his role and his abilities and what he's able to do. So so I'll be back shortly with with those chapters. Um, so as always, thank you so much for listening. If there's anything I missed or any comments you have on chapters four, five, and six of Martian Time Slip, please uh, leave them below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I very much want to hear from you and hear your feelings about these works. So um, with that, I'm going to go. Uh, again, thanks for, for listening, and I'll see you next time when we look at the next part of, of Martian Time Slip. Till you find the bluebird, you will find peace and contentment forever if you.